From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voters will decide in November if the state will reintroduce gray wolves. Why a former state biologist is voting yes. Wolves evolved in the western United States for tens or hundreds of thousands of years with their prey. We need to have that back. But a cattle rancher says no. We want the management of our wildlife to stay in the hands of Colorado Parks and Wildlife and our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Today, a debate with both sides of Proposition 114. Then, to say this has been an anxious year is probably an understatement. How subjecting yourself to stress actually might help with coping. Managing your physical responses to stress, you get resilience to all the emotional things that are really racking our nerves these days. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. Gray wolves are on the ballot this November. Proposition 114 asks whether Colorado should reintroduce the endangered species. Voters have never weighed that sort of decision, which means the initiative isn't just about wolves. It's about who makes decisions about wildlife. So to sort it through, we'll talk through both sides of this issue. Arguing for the reintroduction is Gary Skiba. He's former state biologist who works for the San Juan Citizens Alliance, an environmental group in Durango. Hi, Gary. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. Arguing against the proposition is Robbie LaValle. She's a cattle rancher in Hotchkiss, Colorado, and a Delta County administrator. Hi, Robbie. Good afternoon, Avery. Thanks. Gary, let's start with you. Humans eradicated wolves from Colorado in the 1930s or 1940s. Why is it time to bring them back? Well, the reason we want to have wolves back is wolves evolved in the western United States for tens or hundreds of thousands of years with their prey. And ecological systems function with all of the pieces in them. That's the way they essentially have been designed to function in the end. They've evolved into a position where every part of that ecosystem has an important role to play. And wolves are particularly important in ecosystems just because of the kinds of things that they do in the way that they um, essentially manage their prey. And as a result of that, we've seen some of the changes that have occurred in Yellowstone, for example, where we've seen improved environmental conditions, at least partly because of wolves. I won't say entirely, but partly. And we won't probably see the same thing exactly in Colorado, but we do know, again, that wolves evolved for for a long, long time with their prey and were part of how the ecosystems function. We think we need to have that back. And we also think that um, we owe it to to our descendants to have a fully functioning ecosystem. So those are the big reasons. And how would that work exactly? If the initiative passes, when would we see paws on the ground? Paws on the ground would be by the end of 2023. That's in the ballot initiative. That's the requirement. And one of the reasons that period of time from the election to the uh, pause on the ground is there is because uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife will do an intensive planning process between the passage of the proposition and when the wolves are reintroduced. So that and that will include all of the stakeholders that are out there. We'll make sure that their their concerns are addressed. And it, it won't be perfect as any stakeholder process. None of those are perfect, but it will be something that does address all the concerns that are out there. It's a strong science-based plan that figures out how many wolves we can 
bring in, where we'll get them, where we're going to release them, all of those facts that people ask about that we don't know yet because the planning process will establish those. And obviously there would be a lot of logistics to work out and specifics to work out, but generally speaking, how would you introduce a species like gray wolves? Well, we've done it. You know, it's been done in Yellowstone. It's been done in other places as well, Yellowstone and central Idaho in particular. Wolves are pretty easy to reintroduce. You capture the wolves somewhere, which is really not that difficult, and bring them down there in a cage, you let them go. And yeah, as long as the wolves are there with some other members of their family unit, they'll do fine. Robbie, what's the main reason you won't be voting for reintroduction? When we think about the the wolf issue and we think about the ballot process, we want the management of our wildlife, and that includes the the wolf to to stay in the hands of Colorado Parks and Wildlife and our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we want the biologist, we want the experts, we want the individuals that are really on the ground that really know the science, they know the habitat, they know the ecosystems, uh, they've looked at it. Colorado Parks and Wildlife has looked at this extensively. Fish and Wildlife Service has not put forward that Colorado should be part of the introduction. So we, we want the science and we want the experts, including all of the biologists, to make that decision, uh, not uh, just voters based on emotion. And so we want that decision to rest in our expert scientific community. So just to be clear, by experts, you're referring to the Colorado Wildlife Commission that voted against wolf reintroduction in 2016. But the commission is a group of people appointed by the governor. They aren't all necessarily biologists. Is that right? No, absolutely. I mean, they sh- they have different expertise. Uh, they have different uh, based on their experiences and that. But they also take staff recommendations and they take those staff recommendations very seriously. And the staff recommendation from not only 2016, but uh, three times before the Wildlife Commission and Colorado Parks and Wildlife have said, we are not in favor of this, the reintroduction. So again, it's based on that broad uh, interpretation of what we have and really taking the time to study wolves. We know that Colorado Parks and Wildlife has spent over a million dollars just studying wolves and has decided against that. Gary, is it fair to say that experts in general think that reintroduction is a bad idea? No. And I, I was going to push back on that from, of what, on what Robbie said, because as you pointed out, Avery, the Wildlife Commission are not experts. They're not scientists. They do take the recommendations of the, of the uh, staff, but the reality is that the staff, and I was part of that, I was um, the staff lead for the 2005 wolf management plan that, that the Division of Wildlife at the time did, now Parks and Wildlife. The, the biologists are not going to independently come out and say we should reestablish wolves. They're just not going to do it. They understand the political uh, environment that they're working in, and they will not do that. It's not going to happen that way. And the reason that the commission and the legislature has declined to uh, push reintroduction of wolves is entirely for political reasons, not scientific ones. And the science has not weighed in on this. And in fact, when scientists have looked at it, uh, there was a study performed uh, under the um, under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service back in 1994. It demonstrated clearly that Colorado can support between 500 and 1,000 wolves. There's no question. The habitat's here, the system's here, and again, the system has been broken by what we did when we removed wolves, and we have the chance 
to reestablish that system. So from a scientific basis, uh, any biologist that looks at this from an objective standpoint, that is someone who's not influenced by the politics that prevent them from uh, making this recommendation, they will recommend the wolves be reestablished. And Robbie, what do you make of Gary's point that wolves could bring ecological benefits back to Colorado? Certainly, we understand, uh, you know, ecosystems and that. And when we look at where the basis for that comes from, and we look at the greater Yellowstone area, we have the large uh, valleys and the the pine areas. We have the Lamar Valley, and they talk about the willow regeneration and the aspen and that. And so when we look at that area and we see the, the some of the initial results that showed an improvement in the aspen, they showed an improvement in the in the willow, then we understand uh, why uh, when you look at uh, especially some of the journal articles, it does say that. But again, uh, that's not the ecosystem we're dealing with in Colorado. And the ecosystem that we're dealing with in Colorado includes right now 5.3 million people. And it includes a a robust hunting season that uh, our smaller communities, as well as uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, rely on for the management of of other species. It also does not include that burgeoning uh, recreation that we know. So, again, when you look at science and you strictly look at uh, revegetation with the, the willows and that, you can say, yes, we see that because you had an animal, a herbivore, that relies on that vegetation for its food source that was staying too long in one area. But because of hunting uh, pressure in Colorado, we do not have the same ecosystem as uh, the Yellowstone area. Robbie's absolutely right that Yellowstone and Colorado are different places. But as I mentioned earlier, wolves evolved in Colorado for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years of their prey. So they are part of the ecosystem they were. I mean, it's funny how people um, seem to think that the conditions that you see today are the, the way things should be. We only got rid of wolves 80 years ago. You know, we removed them from the, from the state 80 years ago and they were around for millennia before that, interacting with their prey, interacting with the environment. And Robbie's right, it's unlikely that we're gonna see exactly what we saw in Yellowstone. And there's still um, a fair amount of scientific um, disagreement about exactly what happened in Yellowstone and why it did. So that's that, those things are all true. But we do know, we do know that wolves were are an important part of the ecosystem of Colorado, and we we changed that. As far as recreation and hunting, um, there are more people in Colorado than there are in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. As far as density goes, and looking at wolf densities, you know there there is there's definitely more of a chance for interaction between the two here, but. Wisconsin, Minnesota, and uh, Michigan all have higher densities of people with wolves than we have here. And if you go across the oceans and look at Albania, Poland, Israel, a number of other European countries, many of them have both higher wolf densities and higher human densities than we will ever have in Western Colorado. I won't say ever about human densities, but as far as what we expect wolf densities to reach, we're never going to see Um, a higher density of wolves than they have in some of those countries with higher densities of people. So we know that people and wolves can get along. What about livestock and wolves? Robbie, does worry about predation play into your decision not to support this initiative? 
when you talk to individuals and you read the information sheets from Colorado State University, they talk about that predation is localized. And, you know, we understand that. But if you're the individual rancher or you're the group of ranchers that are having that predation, that is very real. And that is very real from not only an economic standpoint, the uh, the banking industry values a cow at $1,800. She will normally in today's market have a $900 calf. Over her lifetime, she'll have eight calves. So that is $7,200 plus her value is $9,000. That is removed from that rancher's bottom line. And individuals have that direct impact but what is not often talked about is the indirect impact of the stress. It is real. It is backed up by uh, science that there is a stress to an, uh, domestic livestock that are come in contact with wolves. And there is a decrease in the, the conception rate by 3 to 5%. There's a decrease in the weaning weight. All of those have an impact on an individual rancher's bottom line. And you're talking about an ag operation that is already on a thin margin. And so, yes, predation is very much real because if you have ever seen your livestock um, predated on, or if you have ever seen animals that are succumb to a wildfire, we're just seeing uh, horrific pictures of livestock that have been decimated by wildfire. Or, or the predation, it is very much a traumatic experience. And so uh, the kills are gruesome. It's a traumatic experience and it has a significant economic impact. And yes, individuals will talk about there is a predation fund to provide for compensation. But we know from uh, talking to uh, Montana and Idaho and uh, Wyoming, that only a very small percentage of the kills are verified because they do have to be verified. That's understandable that it was actually a, a wolf that provided the predation, but it's a very small percentage. And yes, this ballot initiative calls for the state to fund, but again, where we're already dealing with not being able to fund our roads or our schools, to think that we will go ahead and fund a, a predation program is not economic reality. So in summary, yes, predation is very real and it is, it's significant to those individuals that have that impact. I did want to address the issue of cost, which Robbie brought up. The cost that's estimated now, and it's not a perfect estimate, is roughly a million dollars a year to reestablish wolves in Colorado. One million dollars a year is point. 0.5%, one half of 1% of CPW's budget, not the state budget, CPW's budget. So anything that happens with the state budget is not going to influence CPW's budget directly, especially in the areas of threatened and endangered species management. That's what I spent my career doing. I understand the process really well. I understand the funding sources. It's not going to affect it. Now, the way it would affect it is there would be some priority decisions made. We may not stock as many Colorado River cutthroat trout if we were reintroducing wolves. So there would be impacts to some existing programs, but overall, one half of 1% of the agency's budget. But um, the initiative talks about to the, that the state will fund, and the state is already cutting $1.3 billion from schools and, and that. So I, I think we have to be careful there. And what I'm saying is the state is 
not a monolith and the, the budget of CPW is definitely different. And that's where this, the funding sources will come from. Robbie mentioned the, the um, depredation payment program. And there's no question those programs are less than perfect. One of the things that uh, will happen in Colorado is we have the opportunity to design something different, better than any other place has done. And that's where ranchers, biologists will get together and be able to, to, to create a program that really does address the needs better than they have been in the past. There are some real issues there with equity. I agree with that. Um, one of the things I wanna point out about livestock is in Montana where we had good data where we could look at it. The rate of, of depredation on, on cattle by wolves is 0.01%, one one hundredth of 1% of the cattle are killed. And as Robbie said, for the individual whose ranch that is, that, that can be a big deal, but we're talking one out of every 10,000 cattle per year is killed. In Colorado, it isn't an avoid of wolves right now. Sam Brash, one of CPR's reporters, has been writing about what appears to be a pack living in northwest Colorado. State biologists confirmed their presence this winter, but it also looks like some of those same animals may have been killed in Wyoming. Gary, what do you make of all that news? Is there a chance wolves could come to Colorado on their own? Well, this is one of those um, interesting discussions that I've had with folks because a number of folks who are opposed to wolf restoration say that we should listen to the experts, and meaning the biologists. And if you listen to the experts about the possibilities of wolves reestablishing by coming into Colorado from either the north or the south, biologists universally agree that it's not going to happen, or it's very, very unlikely to happen. So the experts say that reestablishment of a viable wolf population in Colorado from migration through, through from the areas where wolves are established now is extremely unlikely. We know they're here. You know, we know that they're not only in, in northwest Colorado, but there's been sightings, you know, as far south as, as areas around here and in central west Colorado. So we know that they're here. Uh, that is why the you know, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission and the environmental community and the conservation community and sportsmen and landowners and biologists and all those sat down to develop the, the wolf management plan because they knew that they would come into this area uh, out of the greater Yellowstone uh, management area. And they wrote that plan and they put that plan into place. So they knew they would come in. I, if I could, I'd just reiterate the, the wolf biologists that have looked at this are firmly convinced that wolves will not reestablish themselves. Yeah, we also know that just like attorneys, there's dueling biologists and dueling opinions when it comes to the biology of wolves and whether or not they will establish. So I think you you know you all know that that there's differing opinions out there based on which uh, biology and and experts you listen to. Well, let's move on to our last point. Both of you live on the western slope where wolves would be reintroduced if this initiative passes. Gary, is there an issue that splits along geographic lines? Is it a case of the front range making decisions about what happens west of the continental divide? The most recent survey that was done was done last just about a year ago, done by CSU. And these are people that are scientists who uh, do social research, who understand polling very well. That poll showed that 85% overall across the state support the restoration of wolves. Now, the reaction to that is always, well, that's all these people on the front range. They did separate out because, again, they're scientists who know what they're doing. They separated out the West Slope, Front Range, and Eastern Plains. So 85% statewide, 84% on the Front Range, 80% on the Western Slope. 
So four-fifths of the people on the Western Slope support wolf restoration. So it's not a front range versus West Slope issue. Robbie, do you think the Western Slope could eventually learn to live with these predators if it has to? When we think about the the West Slope versus the, the front range, you know, the wolf does not know that there is that divide. And, um, you know, the wolf will populate areas where uh, it has the, the habitat and uh, the prey base and that. So if you ask, can they live, you know, the other uh, states look at that. The other states uh, have managed that. But again, it is that localized impact. They are coming here naturally. Let's let that occur. Let's let our wolf management plan that's in place have the ability to manage the wolves. And again, let's let the individuals that have that expertise in our Colorado Parks and Wildlife, our experts, really take the lead on the management and not manage wildlife by ballot. To manage wildlife by ballot is not the most scientific sound methodology that we have, nor should it be what we employ. Robbie talked about the appropriateness of making this decision via the ballot as opposed to allowing wildlife managers to make it. I I was a wildlife manager. Um, I was there when the bear initiative passed, when the trapping initiative passed. And people were concerned about that. They felt that um, some people were concerned about the fact that, or the idea that authority was being taken away from the agency and from the biologist. In this case, and one of the reasons I support it is because this is a policy decision. This is not an implementation decision. The simple policy question that's being asked to the voters of Colorado is, do you want wolves in Colorado? Now, as far as how that happens, every detail as far as what a depredation program looks like, where the wolves would come from, how many wolves are released, where they're released, when they're released, how they're managed after that, those are the appropriate areas for CPW biologists to be involved in. But this initial question of whether we want wolves or not, that's a policy question and the wildlife of the state belongs to every citizen of the state. And they have not only the right, to me, they have an obligation to be making those sorts of decisions. Gary and Robbie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Avery. Thanks for having me. Avery, I appreciate the opportunity to bring forward critical information. And so thank you for your time and thank you to the listeners. Robbie Lavallee is a cattle rancher and a Delta County commissioner. Gary Skiba is a former state biologist who's with the San Juan Citizen Alliance, an environmental group in Durango. Voters will decide Prop 114, the measure to reintroduce gray wolves to Colorado's western slope in the upcoming election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, host of the CPR News podcast On Something. And on October 15th, our podcast is hosting its first ever live virtual event. Join me and Denver's own Andrew Orvidal for an evening of stories about those awkward moments where cannabis and family overlap. We'll laugh, we'll cringe, and we'll all learn something together. Sponsored in part by the Rodman Law Group. Register at onsomething.org slash myfamily. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Whether it's the upcoming election and the political and social stresses gripping the country or concern about a surge of COVID-19 heading into the fall, it seems the anxiety this year just won't let up. 
It's why we want to revisit a conversation about handling anxiety. Investigative journalist Scott Carney of Denver traveled all over the world to meet with scientists and healers who study the body's natural resilience. It often emerges when we're facing stress. So Carney purposefully put himself in stressful situations playing with heavy objects, tricking his mind into thinking great white sharks were on the prowl, subjecting himself to extreme temperatures. His book is called The Wedge. He spoke in May with my colleague, Ryan Warner. You meet a scientist who studies fear. Uh, He's the one who helped you feel like you were being hunted by great whites. Who is he? What is he trying to learn? So Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist at Stanford trying to understand the roots of fear. Uh, And he does this by making you swim with virtual sharks, uh, virtual great white sharks. And, you know, he spends a lot of time off the coast of Mexico swimming with great whites. And he takes these 360 degree images of the sharks and then brings them back to his lab to put people into this, you know, sort of fearful environment. And what I was hoping to understand with him is how when you're in the presence of something that's really terrifying, how you can control your responses to that. You know, there are certain sensations that come with fear, right? It's not just the anticipation of getting eaten by a shark, but there's these heart changes and there's these emotions that that sort of roil through you. And the people he studies generally um, have anxiety disorders. So they get very nervous very quickly in these VR simulations. And I wanted to put myself up against this really strong stimulus, and then learn to control my fear. The problem was, while conceptually it works really well for people who are nervous easily, um, for me, I wasn't that scared of the virtual sharks. They, <laughs> they, they, they didn't quite hit that sort of really strong root in my body. So I left his lab with a really strong understanding of fear and how sensation and emotion get linked up together in memory. But I was still looking for other techniques that could sort of let me dig deeper. And this brings you uh, really around the world to meet all sorts of interesting scientists and healers. And I I do think that what you laid out there is a good description of The Wedge. That's the title of your book. It's the idea, it kind of reminds me of what my mom used to say, which is, You can't change outside events, but you can change how you react to them. It's almost like a a biohacking. Do I have that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, we live in a world of, like, chaos, especially right now. Like, the world has gone mad, right? And we look out there and we can see, you know, we worry about COVID. We worry about the economy. We worry about our health. We worry about all sorts of things that we have no control over. And what I've learned in The Wedge is that you can learn to control those reactions um, by sort of creating space between the stimulus, which in this case could be that just you know, listening to the morning news, right? <laughs> and then the response, how your body um, interacts. And the way we do it is is actually by generalizing stress, um, by facing other things that are difficult, that give you sort of an environment that forces you to react and forces your body to respond to something that's difficult, uh, such as, for instance, an ice bath or confronting a fear or doing an exercise that's very, very emotionally and physically taxing. You learn that by managing your physical responses to stress, you also get resilience to the all the emotional uh, things that are really racking our nerves these days. So this is something we can practice. In other words, it's, for lack of a better term, it's a muscle that we can develop to 
make sure that stress and fear have a different um, toll on our body? I guess, isn't that just biofeedback, Scott? Biofeedback is certainly in the same wheelhouse, um, as is yoga, as is meditation, as is martial arts. I mean, there's so many cognates out here. And and the way I think of it, there's so many different wedges out there Mm. where, you know, you can become a very well-adjusted person really digging deep into practices that you're already doing. But when you add sort of an emotional component to it and then manage the emotion and the physical at the same time, you get very resilient. You know, I like to think about this in relation to where our ancestors were. You know, we have the same underlying biology as, you know, our prehistoric cavemen 300,000 years ago. And in those times, our threats were visceral and real. It was like lions charging you, right? And when you had, when the lion was coming, you had to grab your spear and stab the lion or run away from it. And the threat had this physical response um, from your body, which was releasing adrenaline, which was releasing cortisol and these sorts of things. But when we fast forward to the modern world, so many of our threats are esoteric, right? They, they come at you through the news and through the social medias and through, you know, looking at your bank statements. And when you look at those things, you still release the same chemicals your Paleolithic ancestors did, but you don't have the physical response to match it. And what happens is those chemicals, those hormones, sort of turn crazy in your own body and they drive up depression, they, they foster anxiety, and weirdly, even autoimmune illnesses. So your idea is to expose ourselves to that and to become resilient in the face of that. And, you know, like maybe maybe a small version of this, uh, as you write, is that we exert control over our body's processes, reactions all the time. When we delay a sneeze, for instance, mm-hmm. when we resist the urge to laugh when someone tickles us, those are small examples of the kind of power we have and the kind of power that you're harnessing here. Yeah, absolutely. And the question really comes down to why are we conscious, right? You know, why did we evolve to be able to make decisions about the world? And, and you know, you could conceive of life occurring without decision-making abilities, right? But somehow the, the evolutionary process gave us the ability to make choices about the world. And, our, and choices about the world come to us through our sensory system. Like we have to see the lion, right? We have to smell the arcid flames of some poisonous gas, right? We have to respond to the environment, and this this gives us sensations. And those sensations are what we can modulate because when you face, uh, let's say, an ice bath, and I'm big on ice baths. I think they're pretty yeah. great. And you, you also, you, as you've said before when you've been on the show, you also take cold showers, which I, I've tried myself, yeah. and they're just awful. <laughs> I mean, Ryan, you are so correct. They are miserable, and that is also why they're so wonderful. And about 10 minutes ago, I got out of a cold shower because I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be talking to all of Colorado right now. That is somewhat nerve-wracking, right? But the, what the cold shower does, and, and all of these stressful stimulus do, is force you to focus on that thing, right? It forces you to focus on the cold water cascading over your naked body. Mm -hmm. And it put me directly in the moment. And the anxiety, so anxiety is essentially like adrenaline running through your body with nowhere to go. But the cold shower gave it a place to deal with. And then I come here and now I'm talking to you. And don't I just sound wonderful on the radio? Well, I think you don't sound nervous, which is really nice. (laughs) Um, Well, the thread of this latest book is 
stress. So the stress of extreme temperature. Uh, on the on the other mm-hmm. end, a guided five hour sauna in Latvia. Um, the stress mm-hmm. of a heavy object hurled at your head. You meet this dude who has a kind of focused ritual of throwing kettlebells back and forth with a partner. It's like an anvil in the Looney Tunes cartoons. You expose yourself to ayahuasca and MDMA, also known as ecstasy. Those are sort of chemical versions of this. Are you essentially trying to recreate the puma chasing you on the Serengeti? Is that is that what this is? Yeah, I'm trying to give us real dangers, but not dangers that are going to hurt us. Like the point of the wedge is not to put yourself into a place where you're actually going to get damaged. The point is to give you stresses that have physical outlets to it. So with the kettlebells, and you said you throw the kettlebell at the head. That's not true, and I don't want people to go out and start throwing kettlebells at each other's heads. Well, the stress, I guess what I said is that the stress of it is that it would be at your head. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the fear of, you know, because when someone hears I throw kettlebells, they think, oh, man, you're, you're going to break your foot or you're going to break your partner's foot. And the first time you throw it, it's scary. Like you clench every muscle in your body and mm. you feel like you just want to run away. But what you're actually doing is because the threat of that kettlebell hitting you is so palpable and so real, but the movement is actually very easy. It's not difficult to catch a kettlebell. What happens is you both completely focus on that object that's going between you and your movements start coordinating automatically. It's what we call a flow state. And you go from this this thing of danger to essentially dancing. So this exercise of kettlebells uses the threat of hurting yourself to actually form connections and empathetic links to the other person that you're throwing the kettlebell with. It's fascinating. There are a ton of videos on YouTube of this kettlebell tossing back and forth, and it really, it becomes this choreography. Now, you hinted at the the potential health benefits of this kind of release and this kind of focus, and I think you said autoimmune. Yes. Expound on that for me. So the autoimmune stuff really comes from Uh, The research on it really comes from my earlier book, which is called What Doesn't Kill Us. There's this guy named Wim Hof. He's the Iceman. He uh, is known for dunking himself in cold water and just like being warm in these like Arctic temperatures. And when I first reported the story on him in 2011, I was going to debunk him. I was going to say, you're you're crazy and this doesn't work. And it turns out I could do the same things he did after like a week of training because it's very easy to learn. But what I didn't expect is that this autoimmune illness that I I had, uh, you know, since I was a child, um, just sort of vanished after doing the Wim Hof method. And what it was, I would get these canker sores, these big white mouth ulcers in my mouth, probably about once a month. And they were like the size of dimes. And these were like, you know, some people who were listening might get canker sores. Mine were on steroids. They were really bad. But I did this method and then they sort of went away. And while there's a lot of science to why this is, and there was even a clinical trial on a Wim Hof method and autoimmunity that you should check out. It's on, all over Google. The way I like to explain it is that, you know, when we're d- dumping this adrenaline and this cortisol and all these stress hormones in our body, you can think of your immune system as like a pack of wolves. They're going out trying to detect predators and uh, detect infections and yeah. deal with them. But when we we're in the absence of predators, and then we're also giving those wolves adrenaline, they need something to do. So they end up chewing on your body, right? They end up being, you know, and for me, they were chewing up canker sores. Huh. Uh, 
Whereas if we're doing these methods, what I'm essentially doing is giving those wolves chew toys. You know, I jump the <laughs> adrenaline in, and then I, then I give them the cold shower and then they're like, okay, we'll chew on this instead. Oh. And that's why this is so effective at reducing not only my canker sores, but many, many other conditions, at least anecdotally. And, you know, we have to make the caveat here that even though I, I know of hundreds of cases, uh, we really would love a controlled randomized study that, you know, is 10 years to do and a billion dollars to cost. But we just don't have that yet. When you learned to fend off the cold, uh, a lot of it had to do with breathing. One of the most practical exercises I took away from your book is trying to breathe more through my nose as opposed to my mouth. Mm -hmm. Explain why yeah. that's a, a thing and gr like ground us in, in the science, it, which, by the way, I just want to say your touchstone in this book is science mm -hmm. and to what yes. extent it can back up the claims that people are making. Right. So... With breathing, you know, most Americans, uh, most people in the Western world are mouth breathers by nature, right? We just don't have very good hygiene, so we breathe through our mouth. But, you know, we have noses for a reason. If you look out in the animal world, almost every animal keeps its mouth closed when it's breathing unless it is in an excited state, right? Unless it needs to sprint or something, in which case it opens its mouth and draws in more air and then exhales more CO2, which is the um, byproduct of respiration. Now, for whatever quirk of evolution that this that it turned out this way is that we actually don't detect oxygen levels in our body. What we detect is the buildup of CO2. So when you have higher levels of CO2, that correlates with anxiety as well. That, that gives you sort of those anxious feelings. And you know, if you go to um, cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes they will dose you with CO2 to induce a panic attack in a safe setting in order for you to get feel okay about the panic attack. And that, that this alleviates some of the anxiety of panic attacks. But the important thing to realize is that CO2 can actually trigger the panic, okay? So what happens is if you're breathing through your mouth, you're always blowing off CO2. So you actually are very sensitive to CO2 buildup in your body. Even low levels of CO2 will actually make you feel more anxious. Uh, and in correlation to that, it'll also make you feel more exhausted if you are uh, doing a sort of an endurance event or something like that. And what the exercise is, is if you start switching from mouth breathing to nose breathing, you will build up tolerance to CO2, which will make you less anxious in general because you've sort of just made yourself more resilient to it. And it's especially great if you can do a cardio workout while just breathing through your nose. And I know it sounds sort of easy to do. Okay, I'll just breathe through my nose. Uh -oh. But this is, will be the hardest cardio workout <laughs> of your life. And you will have not only – it will be physically exhausting. You will be emotionally spent at the end of that too because you're also having these to, – to manage your anxiety. However – if you push through it, if you sort of continue these practices over time, you have sort of across the board changes in both anxiety and, interestingly enough, performance. Because what you can do is then when you're in that, let's say you're a sprinter and you train sprinting just nose breathing, then when you switch to mouth breathing, you have all of this more oxygen, you're blowing off more of CO2, and you actually have raised the floor of your performance. Mm.
It's, I've been riding my bike to and from work and experimenting with this. It's not easy, mm-hmm. by the way, to just focus on nose breathing when you are in any kind of cardio activity. It does strike me that the masks that we're all wearing these days have a very similar effect, actually. I wind up being much more conscious of nose breathing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we should start a company called COVID Fit because these masks actually do restrict your air pathways and you're sort of rebreathing CO2. And that can actually make you feel more anxious. Um, yeah. And you could just think about it. No one likes wearing a mask, right? Um, but over time, you will develop tolerance to that CO2. And the long-term effects are probably beneficial from a CO2 tolerance perspective as well as not spreading germs around everywhere. I mentioned some of the more extreme experiments that you took part in to understand this kind of mind-body connection. MDMA therapy, which the FDA is warming up to. Um, A lot of research into this actually at CU Boulder, which is part of a clinical trial Mm -hmm. to treat PTSD with MDMA-guided therapy. Um, You drink ayahuasca in the Amazon, which you describe as having, quote, the consistency of used motor oil and a taste somewhere between rotting fruit and coffee grounds. Um, But a more straightforward experiment was to go into a float tank. These have popped up all over the place. Will you describe the environment they create? Yeah, so I went floating in two different places, uh, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a a float research center and also at Samana Float uh, just down in Rhino. And what is so fascinating about... about the wedge is you know most of the time I'm going into places that are really really intense yeah. right and then controlling myself in that environment and, and then managing to look inside my body about what's happening outside the body but in a float tank you're sort of flipping the script a little bit you are instead minimizing as much as possible the environmental stimulus so that you only realize that your body is an environment in itself. There are sensations that are just endemic to your body that that you maybe don't even realize on a daily basis, even though you are feeling them on a subconscious level. Mm. So I'm floating in a tank and I can hear my heart. I can hear the creaking of my joints. I can feel the blood pressure in my veins and that stuff is sort of happening on a low level all the time. And one of the big themes of the book is what I call a neural symbol. And this is sort of really the engine that makes the wedge work. Essentially what it is, is whatever you feel anything from the outside world that comes into your body as both a sensation and an emotion. So it comes in through your skin or your eyes or wherever, right? Enters into the lowest parts of your brain and then your brain bonds that sensation with emotion. And that's how it makes sense of it because otherwise the sensation has no meaning. And this is what a neural symbol is. And whenever you feel something the first time, you sort of bond this in a special way in your brain so that the next time you feel that same sensation, it actually accesses the prior emotion that you had when you first felt the same stimulus. Now, in a float tank, where this is so important, is that in a traumatic event with, let's imagine the soldier in Afghanistan who's walking down the street and it's like a nice day, sunny and whatever. Um, There's some kids playing, a certain quality of light, there's some smells. And then boom, roadside bomb, he's thrown to the ground, his buddy's dead. And he's sort of looking around, his heart's pounding in his chest. He's breathing really heavily. And uh, you know, this is a really traumatic, horrible event for him. When he comes back home, 
one of the things that might trigger a panic attack for him is if he has the same quality of light that was that same day or a smell of flowers, which isn't a traumatic thing normally, but it's bonded with that previous emotion in him. And that triggers a panic attack. Now, the same thing can happen with your own body. You can be, because the first time people are most aware of their heartbeat, for instance, mm. is when the adrenaline is pumping at full volume after a traumatic event. And so that the heartbeat is always there and it's always sort of triggering back to that traumatic experience for these people with PTSD. That is my own body so, is the cue. My own body is the roadside bomb. Yeah, it, Exactly. So when you go to a float tank, well, and with this researcher Justin Feinstein at the at the Lariat, um, sorry, the Laureate Institute for Brain Research, has shown that when you put these people in a float tank, they suddenly have a new association with their heart because now the environment is so calm, it's so peaceful, it's so easy that their heartbeat now isn't as alienating. Their breath isn't as alienating, and they can actually create a new neural symbol on their on their sort of like their library shelf of neural symbols that then they could also access. And what his studies have shown is that these are almost as effective as SSRIs in reducing panic and anxiety, which is amazing. SSRIs, the, the pharmaceuticals, yeah. I mean, it's just so fascinating because, of course, I'd want my body to know don't touch the stove twice. It makes sense that my body learns to associate that negative... A sensation with the emotion of don't touch that. But you don't want that with walking down the street on a sunny day and smelling flowers. And so th there's the ability to retrain that, which is a version of, of what we've been talking about, this kind of wedge idea. We, we've covered a lot of ground, um, and that's because you covered a lot of literal ground for this book, Crisscrossing the Globe, when when that was still possible, remember that, Scott? Um, oh, man. <laughs> it, it's such a trite question, but what do you want people to take away from the book? I really want people to reframe their understandings of stress. You know, life is difficult, right? Life is difficult, particularly right now in various and novel ways. Yeah. But we have a choice, as your mother said, right? We have a choice on how we will respond to that stress. And sometimes it's very difficult to do. And what I want people to realize is that if you're able to engage different physical stresses, and physical and emotional stresses are, are important, if you have a variety of these tools out there, then you will become more emotionally resilient, you become less anxious, less depressed, and I hope you'll have similar experiences as my remission of cankers if you have an autoimmune illness. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure. Denver investigative journalist Scott Carney speaking with Ryan Warner in May. Carney's book is The Wedge, Evolution, Consciousness, Stress, and the Key to Human Resilience. Finally today, we continue our celebration of Latin Heritage Month with a musical style known as chicha, Peruvian psychedelic rock fused with cumbia and folk music from the Andes. The result will make you want to dance. This is the Denver band Don Chicharron with De Mal Humor, recorded at the CPR Performance Studio last year. 
Lead singer Aldo Pantoja says he didn't grow up listening to Chicha, and inspiration for the band came about when he visited his brother in New York. My brother invited me to a show uh, in Red Hook, and I'm like, I'm a big theater guy. I wanted to go see a Broadway musical. And my brother Yvonne was like, no, 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 no. Like, let's go to the show. Like, there's a Peruvian band, Los Wemblers de Iquitos. And my mind was blown that they were here in the United States, one, two, that the audience was really loving this type of cumbia, and three, it was a style of music that I, I felt a connection to. And so since then, I literally, during the concert, I was texting my good friend, Justin Horrigan, who um, is one of the two lead guitarists in the band. And I said, Los Wemblers de Iquitos, escucha, listen to these. We, we have to do something like this. And so we, I got back from New York and it started. Don Chicharron hasn't performed on stage since January, so we'll leave you with their performance of Sabado Gigante from last year's Underground Music Showcase. Denver Zone, Don Chicharron. For more Latin music from Colorado artists, our colleagues at ND1023 have compiled a list of their favorites at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News.